This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, and welcome to the Scholarly Podcast. My name is Stephanie Maximus, and today I'm joined by Dipin Carmely. Dr. Carmely is a second-year fellow at the University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital, and today we'll be discussing his really interesting and exciting manuscript on a project entitled A Longitudinal Study of Multimodal Bronchoscopy Training in Uganda. Dipin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of background for all of our listeners about how you got involved in this project, because it's probably pretty different than what many of our readers and listeners have read in scholarly or maybe had personal experience with throughout their medical education journeys or their own research. Yeah, so this project actually started in 2019, and it started with this focused question of is there a need for something like bronchoscopy in a low middle income country? And this was done by some of my co-authors back then. I wasn't directly involved, but they were looking specifically at patients who were, you know, being empirically treated for tuberculosis. And they wanted to see, you know, was this a true diagnosis? Did they really need that kind of treatment? And seeing as, one of the common problems we get in these patient populations is getting sputum samples and, you know, they're already immunocompromised. So we have an indication to do bronchoscopy. And so they were able to gather equipment and perform the procedure on at least 14 patients. And they found that through these lavage samples that you know, there was a lot of change in management for these patients. So a lot of them didn't actually need that kind of treatment. One of them, you know, was actually diagnosed with sarcoid. And so they were switched from TB treatment to steroids. And so that really became the crux of getting involved with this project, which was to ramp up, you know, bronchoscopy education for the local physicians. So we were able to identify that need. And so now we were looking at ways to improve teaching this procedure for the local physicians in the hopes that, you know, we could build capacity and really get a better sense of how we're managing patients in Uganda. Yeah. So it sounds like your colleagues noticed a need not only for the technology, but also specifically for training in that technology for the medical staff there How did you initially get involved in this type of work? And have you had other global health experience that you brought to the table when you started working on this project in particular? Yeah, so I've had global health experiences starting since college. So it was something that I've always wanted to get involved with. And it started with doing, you know, medical mission trips and just kind of observing from a distance. And as I went into medical school, I started doing some preliminary focus group research in Ghana. And I did an away rotation in Vietnam. And then during residency, I did another away rotation in Tanzania. And one of the most common themes we see in global health is we want systemic changes and we want longevity to whatever projects that we we start. And so probably around my early third year, like late second year, early third year, when just before applying for a fellowship, 
I just ha it happenstance started talking with, you know, pulmonary and critical care attendings who work in the global health field. And since then, I sort of found my niche in, in applying for that fellowship. And after I matched, I connected with my mentor, Dr. Siddharthan, who has done extensive work in Africa and other parts of the world. And he has he was one of the leading investigators in the 2019 pilot project. And so while I was on my away rotation in Tanzania, he connected me to a team that happened to you know, start this course up again after the pandemic. And, and, and so that's how I got involved with the project. And it was, it was a good initial project for me starting just before fellowship, because one, you know, I'm really interested in education, particularly in the global health realm. I think empowering uh, local physicians and, and local trainees is, is one way to, you know, just build capacity for the healthcare infrastructure abroad. And two, I think it was a good way to start building relationships with the, that site because I, I plan to, you know, stick with the Lung Institute there and, and work closely with the, the local physicians there. So getting my feet wet and, and meeting all the folks there and, and starting to build that long-term relationship was kind of key for me. Absolutely. And we'll definitely, we'll come back to your future plans and your opportunities to return to that site in Uganda again, a little bit later. I love what you're talking about though, in terms of kind of this pairing of the sustainability of a project, particularly anywhere, right? Even in our own home institutions, but particularly in a place that may be under-resourced and doing that by mainly investing in human capacity building. I think that that just speaks volumes to the maybe gentle way that it sounds like your team was able to partner with the institution there. Yeah, I think, you know, we, like you said, we see this in our home institutions as well, but it's important to sustain those long-term relationships. And to do that, you know, we're able to address the deficiencies and 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 what we're trying to achieve when we are doing work abroad. So I think it's important that we always work with the institutions closely and like I said, empower them so that you know they can pass the torch and and bring it to their future generations. Great. I mean, before we jump into like the details of your specific project, can you set the stage for us in understanding some of the background on that specific site that you work at in Uganda, maybe like the the spectrum of disease that you see in many of your patients there, what access do they have to other sort of high resource diagnostic modalities, things like that? Mm -hmm. So I guess to set the stage, basically we work in Kampala in a tertiary care center. And we, and when we started this project, we created the Makarere Lung Institute so a lot of the pulmonologists, physicians that we work closely with come from that lung institute. And the patient population that we're seeing tends to be, you know, high tuberculosis and HIV tuberculosis co-infections. And Uganda is one of those countries that falls within the top 30 countries with a high TB prevalence. And it's one of the top 20 countries with a high HIV TB co-infection prevalence as well. And so... I, I kind of address like the need for, for properly diagnosing not only tuberculosis, but also some of the co-infections that can occur in an immunocompromised state. So there's that aspect of things. And then the utility of using bronchoscopy, particularly when you can't get 
proper sputum or induced sputum. So that kind of builds that need to build bronchoscopy suites and teach those kinds of procedures in those countries. And I don't think this is just in Uganda, right? Like we see this a lot in some of the other sub-Saharan African countries. And there's been a few research studies that looked at Uganda and Nigeria, Rwanda, and places like that. So definitely we're seeing that there is need for it. And we're we're all just trying to make that argument of, of how that shows it within our research. And then in this particular study, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, do you, at that site, did you also have access, like, right, access to CT scans and other, like, just kind of basic radiography? So there are access to those modalities. I think a lot of the issue is going to be cost and availability. And so, you know, a lot of times you'll see that the patients can't really afford those things. And one, uh, one aspect of the pilot project was actually to look at the cost and create like a tiered system so that, you know, for those patients that may not be able to afford it, or, you know, at least we can offer it at a reduced cost comparatively. So it, I think those modalities exist. It's just a matter of, you know, what is considered available in terms of not only from the patient perspective in terms of cost, but also, you know, are those things going to be up and running in these tertiary care centers, you know? Absolutely. So many layers to think about in terms of just providing what we may consider really basic care Mm -hmm. to our patients. Okay. Tell us, tell us about how this project came to be. There's two parts to the project. You know, there was an initial 2019 pilot program. Maybe you can start with that and then tell us about sort of where you come into play in 2022. Yeah. So like I was mentioning in 2019, the question was more so the question was more so, you know, is there a need for bronchoscopy? So they looked at 14 patients and who were, the indication for bronchoscopy was going to be rule out TB. And, and once they performed the bronchoscopy procedure, they found that at least six of the patients had a change in management. They are actually discontinued on TB treatment because they were negative for TB. One patient was diagnosed to sarcoid, so they got switched to steroid treatment. And then one patient was actually found to really have malignancy. So they were able to show that with bronchoscopy, we can get better better results in terms of our cultures and possibly change the direction of treatment for these patients. And I think what we were finding is that there are TB patients who are being empirically treated because they have nothing else to go on. They don't have any other data to suggest otherwise. And it because it's so prevalent, you know, that's kind of, they get rooted in that diagnosis. And so we were able to show that need. And then they were, they were also in that study able to show using this tiered system of cost for the patients, they were able to offer the procedure at a reduced cost at a fixed rate that may be more affordable for patients. And so that's kind of where it started. So in that process, they were creating this curriculum to look at, you know, how their knowledge, as they were training these local physicians, you know, what their knowledge base was and, and through a multimodal system of teaching, through didactics and simulation training, you know, we could see, you know, how different they were or how much knowledge they were able to, to gain than that session. And that session was a couple days longer than the sessions that we provided in 2022. 
between 2019 and 2022 was the COVID pandemic. And so there was a lot of delays in, in starting up that program again. There was diversion of resources, you know, for patients who needed oxygen or PPE equipment, things like that. So because there was this, because of the pandemic, we weren't able to provide teaching. And so there was this delayed effect in, in, in making sure that there was proper follow-up in our, in our curriculum. So that was the intent of 2022 was to bring it back and, and see where we were in terms of a knowledge base. And so that's what we did. We were able to create these didactic and simulation sessions again and figure out ways to be efficient in the teaching modalities in order to demonstrate you know, that there is knowledge gain or assess knowledge gain and knowledge retention since the 2019 session. Can you tell us a little bit about the content of the of the, at least the initial program, you know, I, there were a few different components to the program, like a didactic component, a simulation component. And I understand that there were also sort of live directly observed cases in selected patients. Can you tell us about sort of what were the main like learning objectives, so to speak, big picture wise for your learners? Yeah. So like you said, there's a couple components to this. So the first part is the didactic lectures. And using the Bronkowski International Resources, we were able to create these lectures that were focused on, you know, understanding anatomy, understanding the indications for bronchoscopy, the periprocedural aspects of bronchoscopy and postprocedural, you know, what medications need to be administered and what are the different types of medications, what are their toxicities, things like that. And so each each lecture was kind of focused on different aspects of the procedure itself. The stimulation part, that was mainly through our, our uh, proctors who observed the, the trainees using the bronchoscopy skills and task assessment tool, a verified tool from 2008, which was a 10-question item that basically assessed the things that they were supposed to have learned during the didactic session. So was the person able to localize the anatomy correctly? Were they able to identify a certain part of the lung correctly? And for practical purposes, you know, could they retrieve a foreign object and things like that? So that was the, the second part. And then we had this group of super users. So there were three people who had been formally trained in 2019 who basically had all the experience. And so we prioritized them in 2022 to perform bronchoscopy on live patients with the, with, you know, skilled, skilled interventionalists watching or monitoring. And so we were able to perform the procedure without any issues on, on three patients in that way. That's great. It's, it's helpful to kind of understand the the scaffolding with which you built your program. Then kind of to layer on top of that, can you tell me about some of the educational theories that really were like the underpinnings of not just the content as you described, but how you were hoping your learners would actually absorb and especially retain this, all these experiences, both the the information and the knowledge, but also the, the physical tactile part of the procedures? Yeah. So I think the idea is that you know, by having a didactic portion, you get a chance to absorb 
the information as best as you can. And it should be in a flipped classroom type of situation. So the hope would have been that you, you know, present the information, but some of that information should have been learned beforehand. And so it gives the learners an opportunity to ask questions or sort of mediate, you know, different scenarios so that there's a little bit more active learning going on during the didactic sessions. And then translating that into the actual simulation and the, the live patients, you know, that sense of getting used to the scope, learning the different maneuvers, learning the anatomy, things like that, you know, that also has its own cognitive skill that needs to be learned. So I think overall the theme is active learning and the ways to do that are having these different modalities of teaching, which has been pretty successfully, you know, researched in terms of other specialties, but for bronchoscopy, not so much. And so that's where this study kind of came in was to look at these different modalities and potentially explore in the future, you know, what other modalities might be a little bit more efficient for the learning. So when I was observing this, I think mostly it was mo mostly like people sitting in a lecture hall. That was more of the didactic portion with a few question and answer sessions. But I think there was a lot more engagement in terms of doing the actual, you know, procedure itself uh, on the simulators. And I think having that, like I said, having that active learning process is what keeps people engaged. And I think that's our hope was through these different modalities, we would see a sense of knowledge gained within the in within the session, but also knowledge retention across the 2019 and 2022 sessions. Can you describe for us also like what were your simulators like? So they were mannequins. They're the mannequins, you know, the, the plastic models that you get or the synthetic models that you get the bronchial tree. And so the main simulation would be to advance the scope through the trachea and then go down into each lobe and identify the structures through that, which is very different than probably what most institutions are implementing now, where we have, you know, this specialized equipment and the simulators, they, they give you scenarios and you get to troubleshoot each scenario, whether it's retrieving a foreign object or, or something else. So the the technology becomes a, a little bit of a barrier there because while they're probably learning the anatomy really well, it's those scenarios that really engage the learner to understand the periprocedural aspect of bronchoscopy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a good good sort of segue into thinking about how do you compare them like this curriculum and what you all were able to implement there with what maybe your knowledge is either, either from your own fellowship experience so far or just talking to colleagues in other places or what you've read about in terms of bron bronchoscopic training in the U.S.? Yeah. So I think a lot of it is, yeah. so a lot of it is access to those types of simulators. The other aspect I would say, so because the simulator and access to that was definitely one thing that was different. But the other part was the patient volume. So because the lack of capacity in these developing countries you know, they're not going to have a high patient volume because a lot of them are still, a lot of the local physicians are still in training. For us on in stateside, you know, a lot of our experience comes from not only mannequins in these, in these simulator technology, but also cadavers. And then 
obviously, you know, with monitored attendings monitoring us during live patient procedures. So because we have such a high volume through that aspect, you know, we get a lot of experience with bronchoscopy that way, which I think, you know, places like Uganda, they haven't quite reached that that place yet, but they probably will in the future as, you know, more physicians get trained and become more comfortable with it. Yeah, for sure. Were you able to recreate some of those types of scenarios? Like even without the technology, were you able to, you know, uh, the, simulate scenarios for the trainees there? Yeah, the main scenarios that we were able to recreate was just for an object retrieval. I think from from that from everything else, like if you were to talk about, you know, what do you do when a patient persistently coughs or if you have to deal with hemoptysis or things like that, I think that became more of like a talking out loud and engage in discussion. Mm -hmm. But to physically do that, you know, mm -hmm. that that would have been difficult. And I think it also some of it is how far do you want to go in the training? You know, they're just learning bronchoscopy. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to overwhelm them with too much information at once. Let them get comfortable with just advancing the scope and identifying the structures before you set them off and, and learning all the, the different complications that can occur. Mm -hmm. Was there anything specific about the program that you created that was tailored to this specific training environment or something relevant to the like cultural setting that you were in there? Or does it seem like it would be immediately portable to kind of almost any location? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's portable because we just have the one suite right now. But I think what was interesting was we had to open it up to different specialties, not just pulmonary or just basically any specialty that deals with critical care settings. So we had anesthesiologists, we had a cardiothoracic surgery join us, pulmonologists. So we had a variety of different specialties come and join us, which I think it shows a couple things. One, you know, there's a lot of critical care settings where bronchoscopy is, is warranted, but it also shows, you know, the, the need for more pulmonology. And it's been described in other studies, the lack of respiratory care that's given to these patients. And so, you know, as, as the capacity for just having pulmonology become broadened, you know, that we may see a change in, in who takes care of the scope in terms of that. But I think that was kind of interesting as we had to open it up to different specialties in terms of training. And then I think we have the one suite right now, but you know, if, if we can make it more portable, because the tertiary care center is very big and the, between where the wards is located, where the ICU is located and where our suite is located, you know, they're completely separate buildings on different parts of the campus. So getting more equipment and, and building capacity in that sense is another thing. Yeah, it's those things that we sort of take for granted sometimes, like the convenience of a location in a hospital mm -hmm. where you don't have to transport, you know, somebody who may be really sick to the lab or something like that. Those are the kinds of things that when you're setting up a hospital from the get-go, you might be able to think about, but when you're installing this new technology sort of after the fact, you may have mm -hmm. less flexibility, of course, and you have to kind of make do with what the resources that you have available. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. All right. Tell us then about how you, how you selected your evaluation instruments to know if your program was quote unquote successful. The tools came from the essential 
flexible bronchoscopist book, which basically is a list of questions. And once you answer the question, it gives you kind of the background of why, how you pick your answer. And that's kind of how you learn just based on question and answer format. So we selected 10 random questions, 10 to 20 random questions, which were administered before and after the, the sessions. And then the BSTAT was a validated tool that was, it was published in 2008. And so that was a tool we had selected in 2019 and decided to reuse that in 2022. And so this kind of gave us an idea of the procedural aspect of things, but also some of the key components of periprocedural and, and, and procedural aspects of bronchoscopy that we felt were important for the physicians to know. And so, you know, picking, picking, uh, picking your outcomes is always something tricky and we all want to get our programs like up and off the ground. But, you know, if we do that without thinking carefully about what is it that we're actually measuring, then it becomes much more difficult on the back end. Were there any shortcomings of these instruments that you used or was, do you, after the fact, wish that there was something else that you could have measured or evaluated? I think the the tools that we used were probably on par with what we would see in other studies. You know, I guess one one thing that we could do is expand um, the the length of the multiple choice exam that we gave, just because I I feel like there were not as many opportunities to get questions right, depending on you know how experienced the learner was. And the other, one of the major limitations that we had was that, you know, because of clinical duties, we would have participants that would come in and out of the sessions. And so that may have affected some of the results in that sense. But, you know, having, uh, having I think that would, that would improve a little bit in terms of getting more participants to, to take the exams. I, I think that could have affected our outcomes as well. Yeah, it's always difficult balancing the clinical expectations when you're trying to do an educational program that you're also measuring and maybe not everybody got exactly the same dose, so to speak, of of your of your mm-hmm. intervention, perhaps. Okay, tell us, tell us the good news. Tell us about your findings. What were sort of the big takeaway outcomes, maybe briefly from 2019, but then comparing 2019 to 2022 also? Sure. So the first part that we looked at was just comparing the pre-exam, pre-didactic exam versus the post-didactic exam, first in 2019 and then in 2022. So we found that in 2019, there was a significant increase in the, the exam scores for both the 2019 group and the 2022 group. And then if you compared the 2019 post-didactic group with the 2022 post-exam didactic group, there is also a significant increase there. So that was good because you show knowledge gain within each session, but you also show, show some knowledge retention across these two cohorts. So that was one thing. We also broke it down between an experienced bronchoscopy trainee versus the inexperienced. And they, in the preliminary questionnaire, they 
notified us, you know, if they had ever gone through a similar type of training or were they part of the 2019 training before. So that's how we kind of labeled experience versus inexperience. There, we found that the pre-didactic scores and the post-didactic scores in the experienced participants was significantly higher. The pre-didactic scores in the 2019 participants and the experienced participants in 2022 were higher. So presumably this might be the same people who attended the 2019 session. And then the post-didactic scores between the 2019 group and the experienced participants in 2022 were also significantly higher. So again, showing that knowledge retention aspect. Uh, not, and then we look at the, your... the BSTAT scores. Oh. Oh, no, I was just curious. Mm -hmm. Not not all of your 2022 participants had taken the course in 2019, right? Correct, yeah. So okay. you had there were a cohort of individuals who are inexperienced. So we kind of put that in a separate group. And then within the experience group, I think they may have some outside experience with the scope, but may not have necessarily attended the 2019 course, correct? Mm -hmm. So tell me, tell me about how you understood if there was like how, how your group understood about retention then. Was it primarily looking in this experienced group who you knew specifically had attended in 2019? Yeah. So I think that was, that was the main thing. It was looking at those, the, the that cohort, but also looking at the post-didactic scores between the two cohorts. That's how we kind of assess the, the knowledge retention. And then in, in terms of the BSTAT, you know, even though it wasn't statistically significant, the mean score was higher in the, the 2022 training session. So just seeing that over time uh, kind of lets us know that there is something, there's some knowledge being retained there, even though it wasn't significant. Tell me, so in kind of in, in summarizing your experience, tell me what you think was your biggest takeaways from participating in this educational research project. Was there anything surprising, anything about implementation or looking at the data that was new for you or that just was kind of like an eye-opening experience? We actually kind of shortened the length of the, the sessions this time around compared to 2019. And I think that created a nice balance of having more participants and while acknowledging the participant availability. And I think that also helped. So I, I think that helped with a lot of participation and maybe some of the, the knowledge scoring there. So that going forward, we know what length of the sessions need to be in order to still accommodate for good, efficient learning in terms of ways we could be more efficient in providing education. So, you know, things that we would want to work on are more interactive teaching models, you know, maybe having these didactic sessions online and making that available online so that we have more of that flipped classroom kind of format when meeting in person and having more time spent with the simulator. Because I think, like I said, getting comfortable with the scope and, and maneuvering it does take some time. So I think those were the things that could work on, but also, you know, understanding how the different modalities do really play a significant factor in, in making sure we have good spaced learning. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a theme that you've mentioned a couple times is sometimes like the efficiency of our education actually is really important to make it work for our learners' lives and responsibilities and expectations, and then sort of helping us dis, as the as the educators or as the curriculum developers, thinking about what portions to prioritize or how to best use the time, especially the in-person time with our trainees, perhaps in particular when we're teaching procedural skills. I think that's a really good takeaway point. Tell us then what your next steps are. You know, do you have new questions that have come out of this? What plans do you have to continue working with this team that you have in Uganda? Yeah, I think the next steps are going to be to continue to work with the local physicians and training them. So we've already had some of our, some of my co-authors had made it out to Uganda a couple months ago to continue the work. You know, they're, they're working with the local physicians. They're still trying to increase the capacity as best as they can so that, you know, in the hopes that we can start to look at how many more patients in managing their TB or, or if there are other diagnoses, you know, what else can we do to optimize their care? And I think, you know, the future is going to be, you know, EBIS and, and more interventional procedures for these patients so we can diagnose things like malignancy better. And so, you know, this this is kind of just the first step forward to getting into that trajectory. Yeah, the tip of the iceberg. It's very exciting to be kind of at this moment then in developing these types of programs, I'm sure. What would you, what advice would you give to another fellow, for example, who might be interested in doing education work in a global health context? Like what pearl might you share with somebody? Yeah, I think just doing global health work in general, I think it's important to, before you even come up with your question, is just get a sense of the lay of the land. You know, what what is their system like? And kind of thinking about challenges on, on a similar level with uh, some of the other procedures or, or tasks that are available in that system. So I'm sure that there are other procedures outside of bronchoscopy, which had already been implemented. And so looking at some of the barriers to providing those interventions might translate into providing bronchoscopy or, or any type of global health or any type of procedure within the global health realm. So I think that that's one thing is really understanding, you know, what are the facilitators and barriers to providing that type of care. And then from an educational perspective, I think, you know, what the challenges that we face are, you know, availability in terms of time with the uh, local clinicians and, you know, providing the, the proper type of learning environment for them. So it, catering to those needs and understanding those needs is going to be key to, to making sure that you're effectively providing an intervention. And I think a lot of that comes from, again, you know, assessing the system that you're working with. And then also, you know, creating and maintaining relationships with those local institutions. The overall goal is to empower them. And you can't really do that without, you know, catering to a healthy relationship with the, with the institution. Absolutely. That's a great place to kind of just sum up, you know, this really neat program that you and your colleagues have developed and are implementing sounds like in a sustainable fashion over the long run to invest in human capacity building in this specific institution in Uganda. And we hope that 
eventually maybe it can become a train the trainer type model where the folks there are able to do their own training for their local positions as well as the pulmonary workforce, I'm sure it grows. It's a gradual process, I know, but that's the goal, right? But I applaud you and your and your team for doing a beautiful job of marrying both an educational program with a program that's invested in improving the care for the patients there, as you noted at the beginning, the importance of coming to a reasonable diagnosis for patients, which I know can be extremely challenging anywhere. You know, we have this experience here every day where we make our best, most educated clinical guesses, but I think that that's even more challenging in certain settings. And so thank you for the work that you and your team have done in developing this program. Thank you so much. And thanks for sharing all this, all this excellent knowledge with us for all of our budding medical educators or folks who might also be interested in uh, getting involved with programs in other parts of the world and thinking about how it may be similar or different to our experience in teaching bronchoscopy in our own training programs here. Thanks as well um, to all of our listeners for tuning into this week's episode of Scholarly. If you liked this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org backslash scholarly. Thank you again for listening and have a great day.